So this week I was talking with a friend about addiction and premature death in this neighborhood. Uh, I don't, I've never lived in another neighborhood in Boston. Um, I feel like it cannot hardly be worse to see young people die early uh, than it is in this neighborhood. And so uh, I was thinking about sitting in a church uh, with my friend after, like if, there, if, if we were sitting together in a church during one of these premature funerals, mourning the death of somebody who died way too early, and we live right beside St. Francis, and I've been at a mass at St. Francis a couple of times, and so that's where my mind goes. And so I was just thinking about if the funeral were in winter, just sitting there feeling the cold of the church in winter at like a premature funeral. And then I was thinking about if it was in summer, just kind of like the heavy heat of Boston sitting in a funeral in summer in Boston. And then I was thinking about hearing the sounds of a parent uh, crying and mourning the loss of their kid way too early. I feel like this happens every week in our neighborhood. And then, uh, and then I was uh, imagining um, walking out of the funeral, walking out of the church, and um, just sort of being there with everybody who, you know, like in her case, who she's grown up with and family members and whatnot, and thinking, like, everybody just kind of shuffling our feet, not knowing exactly what to say. Is there hope, you know, that... So often, I think we go to funerals, and if we know this person was uh, a Christian, and if we hear the gospel preached at a funeral, we can leave with a lot of hope. But so often, in a case like that, we leave just kind of not knowing what to say, and it's kind of awkward. And uh, it leaves a lot, you leave with some despair and uh, just a sense. My friend was talking about all these funerals she's had to go to, and how you just leave feeling like you don't know what to say, and you don't know how to move forward, and it's tough. And then I got to thinking about the movie The Goonies. Did any of you watch The Goonies when you were kids? Yeah. I love The Goonies. It's about, if you don't know, if you did not see The Goonies, it came out in 1985. Have you ever seen it? No? Okay. Uh, It's an early Steven Spielberg. It's a Steven Spielberg movie, which is always amazing to me that he made that kind of a kid's movie. It's about a bunch of kids who live in what's called the Goondocks in in Astoria, Oregon. And their neighborhood is about to be overrun by developers. And so uh, the parents have resigned themselves to the fact that the, the demo trucks are coming, everything is going to be bulldozed over, and they're going to have to move. Except for one kid, uh, Mikey, who's Sean Aston, who later played Rudy and was also Samwise Gamgee. It's kind of odd to see him as a little kid when he grows up to be a hobbit. And, uh, and he discovers, he's always heard about this treasure map and that there's a treasure somewhere in their neighborhood. And so he decides that he's going to go, he finds this treasure map, and he decides that he's going to go on this underground quest to find a treasure uh, with his friends. They've got to escape this evil uh, Italian like mob family, the Fratellis, who are just bumbling idiots. And they've got to get away from the Fratellis, and they've got to go through all these things, and then they've got to find the treasure of the, the dead pirate, One-Eyed Willie. And I remember as a kid thinking, like, uh, I, I loved uh, that um, Asian kid who's the inventor who makes the boxing glove that comes out of his jacket and punches the bad guys in the face or other areas. And then I love that bone piano. You remember that part where they're playing the piano? I love those water slides. I loved uh, Sloth and Chunk, like when, uh, when uh, Sloth rips open his shirt and he's got that Superman. I love that. Like, there's so many great one-liners in that. I, wa- I look back at that movie now. I'm like, how did my mom let my eight-year-old self watch that movie? Like, I, don't, I didn't remember the swear words in that movie and other stuff, and my mom let us watch that, and I cannot believe it. That movie at eight years old was just scary enough that I could 
that I could handle it. Like I think about Noah, who's almost 10. I'm like, he couldn't handle this. He would be in our bed for a month if we let him watch this movie. There is no way our children are watching that movie. And so why did I connect funerals with the Goonies? Um, In the movie, everybody is resigned and they're despairing. But this one kid believes in hopes. And he ends up bringing along his sort of ragtag bunch of friends. When everybody's ready to give up, he's ready to go on a quest. And every, uh, when everyone's unsure of the way forward and are tempted to take a shortcut out, uh, he says this. There's a scene where they're under a wishing well, and this guy, who's kind of just a big jerk, uh, is going to lift them up out of the wishing well, and they're all thinking about doing it. The, the quest has already gotten difficult, and they're, gonna come, they're thinking about coming out. And Mikey says, don't you realize... The next time you see the sky, it'll be over another town. The next time you take a test, it'll be in some other school. Our parents, they want the best of stuff for us. But right now, they got to do what's right for them because it's their time, their time up there. I can still hear him saying that. And then he says, down here, it's our time. It's our time down here. And they all walk away from the easy way out and from what's known into what's unknown that may end up costing them their life. And so I thought about that line in that movie, and I wondered, what if my friend could leave those senseless early funerals in Charlestown and confidently say, this is not the end? The grave doesn't have to get the last word. Let's go on a quest pursuing the God who's pursuing us in Jesus and find the greatest treasure the world has ever known, the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what he did. What if she became, in the midst of everybody shuffling out of that funeral, unsure and resigned and sad, what if she became a voice of hope who had a different message and could, in the middle of that sadness, uh, lead people toward freedom? Right now, she knows something's not right. She knows she sits there and wonders there's got to be more, but she's not totally sure what the more is. And so what if, as she lives differently, other friends came along on that same quest And what if one day the number of these early funerals in our neighborhood begins to tick down and people dying of addiction becomes less and less frequent or people dying because they've come to a place of despair in their life and they can't go on begins to tick down in our neighborhood because so many people are beginning to go on this quest because one or two people begin to have courage and live and move forward in a different way. And uh, and that's what this part of Titus that we're going to look at today is about. It's about... Um, Titus finding and raising up and releasing leaders to be pastors in like a really anti-gospel place on an anti-gospel island called Crete. And, and he wanted to raise up leaders. He was charged to raise up leaders who would then take these people on a quest to a different place than they had ever been before to secure a different destiny, to capture a different treasure. And even though they're all amateurs, like none of them have ever done this before, the uh, Paul firmly passed along to Titus, who is to pass along to them the groundwork that if we believe God's word and we live this faith together, we can take people to a different place by God's spirit. And so, uh, and I think we can do that in Charlestown. Like I hold out hope that there is coming a day where we don't see those early funerals in our neighborhood like we do now. And we don't see people living under the weight of despair like it's so easy to do now. So that's a heavy entry point. But if you've got a Bible... Turn to Titus 1. If you've got a large print paperback Bible from back there, I checked the pages today. And the large print, it's 1100. And the small print, it's 579. 
So everybody always grabs the large print. It's 1100 in that one. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and say, let me tell you, we're going to start in verse 10 today, but we're going to circle the wagons and come back to uh, a couple of verses before that, about halfway through. So once you get that page, if you kind of, you know, dog ear it or hang on to it, we'll come back to it. So in verse 10 of Titus 1, it says this, for there are a lot of insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Now, Paul is talking to Titus, and he's saying, look, you got a problem. There's a bunch of crazies on uh, infiltrating these sort of groups of Christians, and you got to deal with them. He says there's some insubordinate people. There are people who are empty talkers, deceivers. And when he says the circumcision party, this is people who are saying, now, you got to do A, B, C, D, and if you don't do those four or five things, then you're not part of the family of God. You've got, one of them was being circumcised. Like, they would say to grown men, hey, you say you love Jesus? Snip, snip. Like, you got to go get circumcised. And if you don't, then you're not really a Christian. If you're not circumcised, you're not a Christian. And it's creating confusion because grown men are like, dude, I thought all we had to do was trust Jesus to be saved. Now you've got to go have this procedure? No thanks. I'm out. And, uh, and they don't want to do it. And I don't, I don't, I don't blame them. Like, that is, would not be the greatest initiation right into a faith based on grace. And so he goes on. He says, there are many insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Now, one of the Cretans... Uh, in other words, one of the people from the island of Crete, a prophet of their own, a poet, uh, a cultural figure, a guy by the name of Epimenides in, in 600 B.C., said this. He said, Cretans are always liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. And he says, now this testimony is true, but he's not saying this about everybody on the island. He's not mocking everybody on the island. He's saying that these teachers from the island of Crete who are confusing believers They are liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons, he said. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any Good work. So you got two problems that Paul is immediately going to address that are happening around these new Christians. These aren't even churches yet. We'll call them proto-churches. They're churches before there's churches because they don't have biblically qualified pastors. So there's two issues that they've got to deal with. The first one is they've got a cultural problem. And this is a tough place. Uh, this is a tough, like, it's, you know, Crete's a really small island. It's a tough island. And these people do not have the best reputation. 600 years before this, this poet writes and said, just lays into the people. Now, Crete was always really proud of itself. They were liars. They said that they were uh, the birthplace of Zeus. If you remember Zeus from Greek mythology, they came up with the myth that, they, that Zeus was born on their island. They thought they were so amazing that the king of all the gods was born on their island. They were also attributed with being the birthplace of the Minotaur. If you remember uh, Minotaurs from Greek mythology, that's the thing that's got a human body, but like a bull head. Do you remember that? Uh, there's one, there's a couple of them in Narnia, like in the Chronicles of Narnia, these Minotaurs. They say, oh, we're the birthplace of Minotaurs, these evil beasts. And so, and then they're known for being very gluttonous and self-indulgent and, uh, and lazy and just kind of slobby, 
uh, overindulgent people. And one of their poets points this out 600 years before. He says, oh, they think they're where Zeus came from, a bunch of liars. They think they're the place that the Minotaur is from. They're the evil beast, not the Minotaur. They're the lazy gluttons. These people don't have it uh, together. And our culture, by the way, is not that much different. Like, if we're honest, if we look at liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, in a lot of ways, um, our culture is not much different. And it's one thing, honestly, I grew up in a church where the pastor would critique culture all the time. It's one thing for a pastor to critique culture. It's another thing for the culture to critique itself as these things. And so I was looking this week at different cultural um, problems around like, we have a, we're in a culture of dishonesty. Did you know that in the Oxford Dictionary in 2016, the word of the year uh, in the English language was post-truth? Uh, we live in a post-truth world, a post-truth culture. That means that uh, objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. We live in a culture where you can lie as long as you lie with gusto and conviction and can be convincing to others. Stephen King uh, has said, only enemies speak the truth. Friends and lovers lie endlessly, caught in the web of duty. Man, we live in a culture where people lie. And then I got to thinking about the, the uh, romantic comedies that we own at our house. You know, uh, we don't have room for all those DVD boxes, so we've got them in one of those sleeves. And, if I, and we, we categorize them because I have OCD about things like that. So if I go get our romantic comedy sleeve, here they are. You ready? While you were sleeping, built on a lie. Um, how to lose a guy in 10 days, built on two lies. Uh, we don't own 27 dresses, but that's a classic one about lies. The proposal, we own that one. That's one of my favorite. Totally built on a lie. Uh, never been kissed with Drew Barrymore. Totally built on a lie. Ten Things I Hate About You, one of my favorite Shakespearean movie remakes, uh, all lies. She's the Man, another Shakespearean remake. Great movie, a fantastic movie, totally built on a lie. Uh, Hitch, one of my other favorite movies of all time, lie. Kayla's favorite movie of all time, You've Got Mail, uh, lie. Uh, all these movies are based on lies. And you even go back to 80s movies like House Sitter and Overboard based on lies. All the way back to Roman Holiday from way back in the day. And it's a relationship built on lies. And so the basic premise of our most successful romantic comedies and the movies are that we live in a culture of lies and relationships start on lies and love is stronger than lies. We can turn a blind eye to lies because love is bigger than lies. We live in a culture of total dishonesty, just like what was happening in uh, Crete. We also live in a culture of evil beasts. Uh, the Enlightenment said that um, because of macroevolution and because of uh, human progression, that we were going to become better people and the world was going to become this beautiful utopia. But we saw in the 20th century that we weren't becoming better. We were actually becoming really evil and we would use our technology to wipe out Jews and people all over the world. We haven't become better. We've actually become more monstrous. And then, so what I wanted to do this week, I went and looked at, uh, I went and looked on Apple Music at the top 10 like songs because I had a theory that they would show that people at heart in our music, which reflects our culture, have, we've, we've devolved into something animalistic. Now, to be completely honest, I, there, were, there was not one song that with a good conscience I could stand up and read from like the, the current top 10 or top 20 in our music right now. Uh, one of, we were listening to this song the other night, uh, the other day called Close to Me, right? By Ellie Goulding. 
and it has the best, it, has the, it sounds so good. And I was like, this song is saying this principle. It's saying we are animals. And then I thought about the song Animals by Maroon 5 because I, that's like five years old, and that's about as current as I can get on pop culture. And, uh, and here's what this song says. It says, baby, I'm praying on you tonight. Sounds great. When it, this is going to ruin this song forever for you. When a preacher reads you lyrics of a song, it ruins it. <laughs> Baby, I'm praying on you tonight. Hunt you down. Eat you alive, just like animals. Maybe you think you can hide. I can smell your scent for miles, just like animals. Uh, don't tell no lie. You can't deny the beast inside. That's amazing. Our music is saying... Can you turn this down just a little? It feels really hot. Our music... Is telling a story in our culture that we are evil beasts and lazy gluttons, and we just consume it and don't think any differently of ourselves. Now, listen, we own all those romantic comedies, and occasionally we'll listen to that music, so don't hear me trying to be like a judgmental, you know, cotton-headed ninny-muggins, as Buddy the Elf says, but this is the culture that we live in. These songs are not outliers. Pop music critiques self and culture by calling us self-destructive, self-serving, sexually decadent, and gluttonous beasts and animals. And Titus is sent to plant churches and find pastors in the middle of a culture that was often anti-gospel. But here's a, this is big. The culture is not our biggest problem. The culture is not the church's biggest issue at all. The remedy for darkness is not whining about how dark it is. The remedy for darkness is turning on light. I've heard a lot of Christians in my life just cry and whine about, man, culture's so bad, music so bad, movies so bad, Washington, D.C. so bad, Wall Street so bad, pick your whatever, so bad. The problem is not like... That's not the issue. The issue is the church has just kind of slinked off and sat there with nothing intelligent to say and meaningful that gives people any hope. And so that leads to the second problem. There's a church problem. And this is the bigger problem in Titus uh, 1, 10 through 16. These people had infiltrated these proto-churches. And these uh, groups of Christians, didn't, they didn't meet the full definition of a church because they didn't have pastors. Now, I got a lot of jobs as your pastor. One of them is to teach. One of them is to pray for you. One of them is when you're sick to come visit you at the hospital. Uh, when you have surgery, I need you to let me know that you're having surgery so I can come and pray with you before and be there with you and sit with your family in the waiting room. These are privileges of being a pastor. Uh, but one of the parts of the calling of a pastor that's not a lot of fun is when a wolf tries to come into the church, it's the job of the pastor to beat the wolf with a stick until it dies. I know, it sounds violent, doesn't it? I've only had to do that as a pastor a couple of times, and I've only ever been okay at doing it well because I saw godly men do it. There are wolves that will try to infiltrate a church and create confusion and eat the sheep, and God calls Christian sheep. And the job of a pastor is to fend off the wolves, and that's what Paul is talking to Titus about here. And so these people that snuck into the churches, they... They were insubordinate. They couldn't be led by Jesus. They were empty talkers. They were deceivers. Um, they were teaching for shameful gain. It says they were peddlers of myths. They were defiled. They were unbelieving. They were detestable. They were disobedient. And they were upsetting and confusing the church. Now, Paul's quote, like I said, was not to mock 
Cretans. Paul's quote was to say, this is the people who are trying to confuse you and sneak into the church. The response to these people is not to run them off, but to silence them, rebuke them, and get them to a place of sound faith. We've had a couple of, it's only happened once or twice in the two years we've lived here, but there have been people who've tried to come uh, into our church and create a bit of confusion, and we've had to say, you've got to stop with that idea or that teaching. You need to repent. You need to turn from that wrong thinking and wrong belief that's not rooted in God's word. And then they have a choice. They can stay or they can leave. They can align themselves with God's word or they can go. But they can't stay and live these traits that he's talking about here in these verses. We want people to repent, and, we, and, and until they repent, we want to marginalize their influence because the Bible says they're wolves, and they create, they create chaos and destruction. And so the greatest threats to churches aren't cultural boogeymen, but internal false teachers and apathetic, watered-down, lukewarm believers who don't know truth well enough to fend off a wolf when it comes into the flock. Um, so Christians on Crete find themselves in cultural chaos with unqualified leaders and loud voices confusing all the new followers of Jesus. If this were the scene in the Goonies, if at this point, if we're in the Goonies, if we can pick ourselves up, it would be right at the point where Mikey decides to do something. The developers are winning, despair abounds, and no one has a plan. So what is Titus supposed to do? Now, let's look at 5 through 9. This is Paul's command in 5 through 9. He says this. Now this... It's why I left you in Crete. He says, this is why I left you on that island. So that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders, pastors, overseers, uh, wolf killers when necessary in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, remember we talked about that last week, that means to be blameless, not sinless, but blameless, walking with God every day in humility, repenting of sin, walking in the word, living for Jesus. If anyone's above reproach, The husband of one wife means a one-woman man. Uh, There's a debate on can a pastor be divorced or can he be faithfully living with a second or third wife. That's a deeper discussion than we'll have today. But that man needs to be, if he's married, he needs to be loving his family and a one-woman man. And his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Verse 7, for an overseer or a pastor or an elder as God's steward, meaning that no pastor owns the church. It's God's church, and he's managing God's church. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Now, if you're going to write anything down today, there's three things I want you to write down. Here's one of them. When, godly, uh, when false teachers and ungodly leaders increase in the church, we multiply true leaders and true teachers. We don't fuss about the culture and get mad, and we don't withdraw. When godly influences or god, godless influences and false teachers increase, we multiply godly teachers and true leaders and faithful men and women in the church. We appoint, you know, Paul says, appoint elders in every town. Translated, 
Every zip code needs a healthy church. Every, every zip code needs a healthy church. That's what he's, if we could translate what he's saying. Hey, Titus, on Crete, every place that gets mail, they need a healthy church. Um, and by that, that means they need to have a godly pastor, he says. They need to be faithful to the word, and they need to have a sense of quest and a sense of mission. And our church needs that, by the way. As, as our church grows wider, we're going to need people to grow up into the faith and into leadership. Carson and Lana are going to be leading a community group this week. And we had this training a few weeks ago, and, um, and Lana says, I don't think I'm qualified. I don't, I don't think we're good enough to do that. And so we walked through that a little bit and said, you know, we don't need you to be a Bible scholar. We need you to care for people, be concerned, ask good questions, and just lead a good discussion. And so they went home, and Carson was like, we got this, babe. We can do this. So and he's not even here today. So there we go. We see about that, don't we? Um, listen, as the church grows broader, everybody begins to move up this sort of leadership. We'll call it a leadership pipeline. And we grow into our faith. It's not the healthiest thing for the church if we're importing leaders from other parts of the country to move into our neighborhood. We may do a little bit of that. We may see some people do that. But we need people from Charlestown who lived here for years and already live here or maybe even were born here to grow up with us into the faith. And, uh, and we'll see that with people greeting on Sundays. We need to see people step up and form a prayer team that are praying through things in our church. We need uh, worship leaders. We need people who run our social media stuff. We need people who will find and coach community group leaders and hosts to serve with kids on Sundays and other roles that I'd love to share with you. We need people to grow together in the faith. It's been so great seeing Marcy and Lana and Elaine begin to do the hospitality, uh, the food on Sundays. It lifts a huge load off of Natalie's shoulders. It's been great for her to see Kayla move here and more people say they will teach. To see Chris really step up, Chris Ferrari, and own helping teach the older kids' class. It allows my wife to be in church for the first time in three months. No one should have to do everything in a church. There's all kinds of gifts sitting in a room, and we need to exercise those gifts for the glory of God and grow. We shot that video trailer the other day and I would hear from people in the community who saw it and they would be like, oh, I didn't know so-and-so went to that church. Oh, I didn't know they went there. Oh, I didn't know they went there. And there was, that's such a powerful statement. We need, this neighborhood needs and deserves an unbelievably healthy, growing, vibrant church. And so the traits of those pastors on Crete and let me say there are three lists in the New Testament of the traits of pastors. One is in 1 Timothy 3, one's in 1 Peter 5, and the other one's in Titus 1. And they're all very similar, but slightly different. Every list says he needs to be a husband of one man, he needs to be a godly man, you know. But then the, the lists begin to get a little unique because they're contextual. What made a good pastor on Crete may not have made a good pastor in Ephesus and may not have made a good pastor to the Jewish people who were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And so these lists are a little unique, but they're contextual. And Paul is saying, okay, on the island of Crete, Titus, go find men who are like this. And we're going to talk about why. And so the leaders, and I think we can universally categorize these things. If a church should have pastors and leaders who are these three things. One, people of, of character. A church should have leaders who are people of character. He talks about, he calls that these are the people who are above reproach, one woman, a one-woman man, 
with believing kids. Uh, a person of character, this addresses who the person is. Have you ever seen a fake preacher? It's like he's peddling one thing from up here, but he's not living it during the rest of the week. You need to be a, it needs to be a person of character. The second thing, a leader should be a person of godly conduct. Uh, this is how he or she lives. If it's a leader in the church, if it's a pastor in the church, the Bible reserves that role for males. And, uh, and so he needs to be a person of godly conduct, how he lives, not arrogant, not drunk, not quick-tempered, not violent, not greedy, not hospitable. Not a, he, needs to be a, or he does need to be hospitable, excuse me, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And then the third sort of macro trait of a pastor is leaders should be people of convictions, what they believe and how they lead. Says so they ought to hold firmly to the word, know the Bible well be able to teach and rebuke, maybe not preach a sermon, but can handle the Bible full of courage and unafraid of a fight. Pastors should be people of godly character and godly conduct and godly conviction. God has a standard for leaders in his church. And some of you may say, well, I'm not a pastor. So it doesn't really apply to me. Well, one, you're here. And so you need to hold me as the pastor of this church to that standard. In, in a way of humility and boldness, if you ever see me begin to deviate from those things very lovingly and biblically, you come and you say, hey, pastor, can we talk? I think you're out of line a little bit in this one area. Now, it doesn't mean that you're nitpicking about my life and looking at everything. But if I'm an obvious violation of these principles, man, we need to address that biblically. And not only that, I would say, even though not everybody's a pastor, we are all called to be leaders in faith and to set an example. First Peter 2, verses 9 and 10 say this. You, are a ch- you, not preachers, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Everybody sitting here is called to be a royal priesthood. If you're a Christian, you're called to be a priest, a holy nation, a people for God's possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you weren't a people, but now you're God's people. Once you hadn't received mercy, now you've received mercy. If we're followers of Jesus, we're called to be a royal priesthood. We're called to be pastors and missionaries as we live in the world. One of my favorite people I ever met was this couple named Mitch and Angie Baker. Mitch was a contractor in Georgia. He was his country. Like, imagine the most country-sounding person that you've ever met and then multiply it times 10, and that was Mitch. And he and his wife, he had worked hard, built his business. They built a house. They got in their house. They said, this is our dream home. He designed it, and he built it. And he got into his dream home, and he said, I think God's given us another dream. And they had three kids, teenagers and preteens, and they sold their house, and God called them to move to Bangladesh, which uh, the capital city of Bangladesh is the most dangerous city in the entire world. And they took these teenagers there because they took this passage very seriously that God calls people to live an adventure of faith and to not play it safe. It may not be that God calls you to go live halfway around the world. It may be that God calls you to live your full faith boldly with your neighbors or coworkers living like a missionary right where God has put you, living by faith right there. Uh, There's no B-level Christian who does whatever while the A-level pastor, leader, Christian ninjas 
uh, do their thing and start churches and live like missionaries and share the faith or die or live or whatever in Boston. So it's not like, oh, well, J.D. and Natalie, they're going to really live the faith out, but we get to just do whatever we want. That's not a biblical approach. So often in our culture, we think, oh, well, there's a Christian and there's a disciple of Jesus. Like these are the hardcore people. There's no, there's none of that. Like we're either all in or we're not in at all. And Jesus calls people to that, to that standard. So you and I are called to walk our faith, live it out and talk our faith. But my mom used to always say this. I hated it at the time. And now I totally get it. She would say this. She would say, and this bears writing down. She would say, your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. Your walk talks, how you live your life says a lot about what you believe and who you are. And your talk talks, what you say you believe and what, how you say you live your life says a lot about. But your walk always talks louder than your talk talks. And so as followers of Jesus, our life, how we're living, how we're walking out our faith preaches much louder than what we say if we're saying anything at all. So this Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. Lent begins on Wednesday. I don't know how many of you observe Lent or follow the kind of church calendar, uh, but Lent begins. And often on this week for the next 40 plus days, people will give up chocolate. How many of you have ever given up chocolate for Lent? Anybody ever done that one? No, Miss Lisa said, heck no. Jesus ain't calling me to sacrifice like that. Yeah. How many of you, a lot of people give up coffee. If you've ever given up coffee for Lent, Natalie's like, nope, Jesus is not calling me to that. Um, uh, I've known people who give up meat for Lent. I've known people who give up bread for Lent. I've known people, I met a guy one time who hated Brussels sprouts and told me he was giving up Brussels sprouts for Lent so that he could say he gave something up. Um, This season in preparation for Easter is a reminder that this season is different. We live one way for, you know, 10 and a half months, but for 45 days, we live a little different. We say that this season is different, and the season points us to God. Every time I deny myself chocolate or coffee or whatever, I'm remembering that Jesus died. It's like we search our house, and we try to figure out if there's anything we can take out that's going to help us remember God for a, for a few days. But what if this year, as we begin Lent this week, what if this year you give up your rights to yourself entirely? What if for from now to Easter, we totally gave up our rights to ourselves and we, rather than setting aside chocolate or setting aside coffee or setting aside meat, what if you set aside yourself in full to God? Luke 9 calls us to deny ourselves and take up our cross, giving up our rights. Romans 12 calls us to be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, setting ourselves aside, literally laying ourselves on an altar and saying, making ourselves a sacrifice to God. Uh, What if this year, in preparation for Easter, you remember that we, not the season, are different? We're different. Lent is not different. We are different. And uh, we, not the season, point others to God by how we live. See, what Lent is intended to do is to point me back to Jesus and his death and resurrection. But what if our life is to be the thing that points others back to Jesus and the resurrection? 
What if that's the thing that God would have us do and become this year? So rather than searching our house and pouring out the coffee or alcohol or throwing out the chocolate or meat, what if we searched ourselves and emptied ourselves of independence and threw ourselves in total dependence on God? What if rather than live like a Titus 1, 10 through 16 person, you live like a Titus 1, 5 through 9 person who follows Jesus and surrenders to God and, uh, and to his power? In a world of liars, we are truth-tellers, if we're Christians. In a world of liars, we ought to be truth-tellers. That's why honesty was listed as one of the main traits of a pastor. In a world of evil beasts, we are human beings with dignity made in God's image. That's why self-control was to be listed as a trait of pastors. In a world of self-indulgent consumers and gluttons, we are partakers and producers. That's why generosity was listed as a trait for elders and pastors. Rather than say this should be a different season, let's say by the power of the gospel, I'm a different person. How would, you show, how would that show up in your life? Groups start this week. I want to encourage you, if you've never done that, to be part of a group and be faithful to the group. The groups will run through the season of Lent. And so making a commitment to be part of a small group. And if you didn't sign up yet, on the back of the little bulletin, there's a phone number. Just text me your name and the phone number, and we'll make sure we get you into a group. And uh, they meet Wednesday at 6.30. They will meet once a week for 90 minutes. Their kids are invited. It's going to be great. And uh, setting yourself aside unto God. The good news of the gospel, as we wrap up, is this. It's not that we go on a quest for God but that God sent his son on a quest for us. As we go on a quest, we're not going on a quest to find God. God, when we were not looking for him, came for us, and he secured our destiny for us at the cross so that everyone who trusts and repents and believes him can be part of his family. We don't have to go find God. He is looking For us, we have access to treasure and hope and a future because he secured it for those who will turn to him in faith and believe and surrender. And we go out now on quest not to find God, but to find others because that's what he did for us. So what would it look like if we lived surrendered? What if we were a community of people known for who we are, how we live, what we believe, and how we lead? I think what would happen is when people walked out of those funerals, first of all, there would become less of them because it's going to take tremendous courage. Like in the movie, The Goonies, when everybody's moving out of the goondocks and they've just decided game over, we're out of here. It took tremendous courage to believe that there was a treasure and that it could be found and it could change destinies. That's the stuff all great movies are made of. Somebody going looking for something because something is broken and has to be saved. So what would it look like in our neighborhood if two or three or 10 or 20 courageous people began to walk out of those churches and say, the grave is not the end. Death does not get the final word. There is a God who is looking for you. He offers hope and you don't have to earn it. And it doesn't come with being religious. It comes with being surrendered. It doesn't come with doing more for God. It comes with giving ourselves completely to God. Man, as we become those messengers of that message, I think it becomes transformative. And I look forward to a day when I am driving my children home from the Harvard Kent at 4.15 in the afternoon and not seeing a confused, hurting family 
standing outside the car funeral home wishing that they had answers that they cannot currently provide for themselves. I think that the gospel, I believe that the gospel is the only message if we will be surrendered to that and live that out well. Let me pray for us.